What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So as the Republicans all across the country, now they're starting redistricting, right? Uh, even more gerrymandering coming down the road. And, uh, you know, this, this whole idea that Democrats shouldn't be allowed to vote, it's like just has become the animating force in the Republican Party. And uh, some folks are doing something about it. Thank God. Uh, Joe Madison and Al B. Sure and a bunch of other folks, Al Sharpton, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. III and others are marching on Washington, D.C. for voting rights. And our old buddy Joe, Joe Madison, the Black Eagle, he's right here on Sirius XM channel 126, 6 to 10 a.m. every morning. Civil rights, human rights activist. JoeMadison.com is his website. You can tweet him at Madison Sirius XM. Joe, welcome back. We will be actually gathering at McPherson Square in Washington, D.C., which is adjacent to the Black Lives Matter Plaza downtown, and then striking out to start walking immediately from there about, oh, I think 10 o'clock, 10.30, no, 10 o'clock, to the White House, and in front of the White House, then straight up the uh, street to Pennsylvania Avenue to in front of the Capitol. We'll be at a uh, venue in front of the Capitol, not in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, I want to emphasize that because usually these demonstrations have always been in front of the Lincoln Memorial. There's a reason it's going to be uh, in, in front of the Capitol. That's because this situation as it relates to the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, used to be H.R. 4, which passed the House, now is in the hands of basically uh, Joe Biden. That's why we're heading down from McPherson Square to the White House and then up Pennsylvania Avenue to near the Capitol, because we want people to see that it is the United States Senate and Congress that can now protect voting, the rights of voting. There are 40-plus states right now, as you know, and your audience knows, 40-plus states. I've heard uh, as high, really, as 49 that have legislation that suppresses uh, the, the vote. And by the way, this is not just the black vote. This is everybody's vote. That's what's happening 
And I'll be uh, co-hosting along with Albie Shore, who, by the way, is now a radio broadcaster, but the young people certainly know him as one of the foremost recording artists and record producers. Uh, We're doing something about it, man. Look, this matter, and and by the way, it doesn't take a supermajority to get the John Lewis bill passed, the John Lewis voting, what was commonly known as John Lewis voting rights bill passed. It, does, it takes a simple majority, and we've got to make sure every Democrat is on votes. And then if that happens, and as we anticipate, probably every Republican will vote against it. It goes, throws into a tie, and then Kamala Harris obviously breaks the tie, which is why voting is important. Can you imagine that here we are in, in 2021, and the importance of protecting people's right to vote comes down, it could come down, uh, Tom, to one vote. Yeah. One vote. I mean, yeah. uh, but this is what we're fighting. I mean, uh, and, and when you talk about, oh, I heard your piece about all these vote, why the Republicans are restricting the vote, Tom, because they can't win if the majority of people vote. And, and and here they are restricting it. We've gone from 20, we've gone from uh, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which basically uh, gave people the opportunity to vote uh, in just southern states. This would cover uh, all, all, uh, all 50 states. So, yes, we're, we're telling people, look, show up, speak up, uh, show up and act out. And we can't give Democrats uh, a pass on this one, and we can't give Biden a pass on this one. And the freaking filibuster is also potentially standing uh, in the way. Uh, and uh, you know, here we go again. Yeah. Uh, well, that was, that, was, that was. I mean, yeah. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. No, no. I was just simply saying. You know, one of the last times the filibuster was used was to prevent the passage of uh, the 64 Civil Rights Bill. Yep. Uh, and it's like history repeating uh, repeating itself. That's where, where, where I was going. Yeah, and the, and the filibuster was exclusively used from when John C. Calhoun essentially started it in the 1830s yeah. uh, up until the Civil War to block any discussion of slavery. They actually passed a law in the House, in the Senate, they just used a rule. And then after the Civil War, from that time until 1965, it was never used for anything except to block civil rights legislation. Something that, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and they, no, I was going to say, and you remember they tried to use it, uh, I think it was initially for Supreme Court uh, debates, Supreme Court nominee debates. And, and just recently, if, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as it relates to the uh, debate on the budget. Yep. Well, here's what the Senate did. It, 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 again, check me out on this. Here's what the Senate did. The Senate passed this rule that says, nope, you can't use it uh, to block, the, to stop, uh, you know, as it relates to debate for uh, Supreme Court justice. So they carved out a rule as it relates to the filibuster. That's right, Mitch McConnell did that. Yep. There you go. And then they carved out a rule as it relates to the budget. And yep. here's the deal. Why? Because the budget was too important to the country to have 
you know, 41 senators or whatever the filibuster rule is, and it's not in the Constitution, you're absolutely right, is too important. Well, if it's too important as it relates to the budget, if it's too important because of the responsibility of the Senate, as re- which is carved out in the, in, the, in the Constitution, then it certainly ought to be carved out so that it's not used to stop people or to restrict people from voting. This is nothing but, and I've said this again, and I'll say it again. This March, ironically, 58 years after the March on Washington against uh, repressive Republican Dixiecrats who wanted to turn back everything from, you know, Social Security to uh, you name it, minimum wage, uh, the whole agenda. Uh, there's a great speech, if your people can find it, a clip of, of from uh, A. Philip Randolph, the, uh, the founder of the sleeping car porters, mm-hmm. the un- first black union. And it is, I'm going to tell you, to me it's more significant than Martin Luther King, as significant, I should say, as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. But he lays out why that march 58 years ago to the date took place august 28 1963 so they were dealing with jim crow today we're dealing with james crow esquire it's just a sophisticated version of jim crow is there in order to get this pat because this is not a budget bill and this doesn't have to do with the supreme court justice uh, as you correctly point out, there are those two holes have been drilled in the Senate rule. And by the way, this is not a law, and this is not in the Constitution. It's simply a rule of the Senate that can be changed with a majority vote of the Senate. Fifty, 50 senators plus Kamala Harris, they can change their own rules. Um, uh, but because this rule still exists, this filibuster rule still exists, all it takes is one Republican senator to say, I object. They don't even have to say it out loud. They can send an email to Chuck Schumer to say, I object. And suddenly the Democrats have to come up with 60 votes to overcome this. Um, Have you heard that there is a particular Republican senator who intends to filibuster this? Yes, I interviewed uh, Congressman James Clyburn, and he explained that to me just like you did. And he believes that uh, that uh, 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 is it, Mikowski from Alaska hmm. uh, appar- apparently has signaled him that it, that she would be in favor of doing just that. Now, of filibustering it or of changing the rules? Of changing the rules. Oh, that's that's consequential. I mean, it'll take ten Republicans to make that. Well, actually, no. It would it would only take uh, no. Yeah, if, if, if she could, you know, because the only block we've got right now is cinema and mansion. We need two Republicans. Yeah, and so uh, now again, uh, I'm 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 so, and that's why he is confident. Now he expressed his confidence on on my show earlier this week. I think I had him on. It was either Monday or Tuesday, but oh, that's great. Um, and and he expressed confidence confidence that uh, that would happen and he deliberately uh, uh, mentioned uh, mentioned her yeah. he thinks that she might she might be the one to 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 flip that would but be again we need one more you know to be honest with you the maneuvering can be confusing tom to us oh no i get it. hey J- joe i'm 30 seconds away from a hard break is there a website what's you know give people the information they need to participate 
Well, yeah, you can go to National Action Network. Okay. Uh, dot org, or you can go to our social media. We've got everything Joe up Madison. on our social com. media. Yeah, and and whatever you know, the mm-hmm. other social media outlets that we have. So it's all there. Everybody, yep. start gathering. McPherson Square, Washington D.C., and we're going to be. We're going to say, show up, speak up, show up, and act out. Put up, put Biden, Biden, the Democrats on notice. You owe us this one. You there owe you us. The great Joe Madison. Joe, thanks again for dropping by. It's always wonderful having you on the program. Great talking to you. Thank you. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, what's on your mind today? Well, good morning. Green greetings, I say. I'm the moose herder, and that gets it in my Google file if I say that. Okay. But today, <laughs> I, I want to uh, connect a book, a new book by Noam Chomsky, which is called The Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, which he wrote in collaboration with an economist, Robert Poland. And then in the Wall Street Journal on August the 12th, one of their columnists, Mr. Daniel Henninger, opened the door for debate and discussion when he said, let's consider and think just for a moment that the United Nations red flag climate crisis report is right then that poses a practical political question of how should we mitigate the world's climate challenge. So there is an open door for debate. Number one, I've sent in a response to the Wall Street Journal trying to get some discussion and debate about uh, Mr. Henninger's premise. Uh, Tom would like to invite you and people watching to consider getting into a debate and let's get the Wall Street Journal debating about what we can do to make uh, a deal with this, mitigate this climate crisis. And I I challenged Mr. Henninger to do a book review of Noam Chomsky's book and in his column. And, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal has opened up the door for consideration of discussion. Now, his article was called The Democrats Will Ruin the Climate. And it said the Democrats just want to use a lot of money for taxpayers' money, and they want to micromanage people's lives by telling them they can't have cars and they have to ride buses and stuff like that. So I think it opens the door for a good debate in the newspaper of the big business of the United States. What do you think, Tom? Could you I, Are you aware of Mr. Henninger's article, August the 12th? The I, I am not, Kino. I, I gave up my subscription to the Wall Street Journal some months ago. Uh, it just it was getting, you know, way too right-wing for me. Oh, um, yes, I agree. It, it, it's, it, most of their climate stuff is all this denial stuff. Yep. But Mr. Henninger has opened up the door, and yeah. he said, let's just for a minute think that it is true. So what should we do? So let's challenge him. Well, I think you're doing it. You're walking through it, and if you're a subscriber to the journal, you know, you can comment on these articles, at least some of them, and, and I encourage you to do that. Kino, I have a question for you. You know, you've been calling into this show for years as the Moose Republican, the guy who is going to try to return the Republican Party to, you know, something, some semblance of, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, rationality, respectability, uh, you know, cautious, but, you know, straightforward and still in favor of a better America. Um, And I know that you gave that up in the last few months, uh, figuring that the Republican Party was irredeemable. Um, What has happened to your movement and, 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 and what's your current thinking on this? Well, I want to get the Green Party to be more oriented toward doing the business that gets the things in place that needs to be done. But that's and just going to help the Republican Party, Kino, because the Green Party will pull people away from the Democratic Party, and then you'll get oh. more Republicans elected. 
No, no, no. I want people to sign up at the Green Party and not have a presidential candidate, perhaps, uh, but be in, in, in Why not have them sign probably. up? Why not have them become part of the Democratic Party and promote green values? Because have a few people in the Green Party that are pushing the priority of the things that need to be done yeah. to avert. Well, I get that at the local the level. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Green Party at the local level, but uh, you know. It's, you know, what I've seen in the Green Party at the national level can be, well, whatever. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Kino, it's always great talking with you. I really admire your, your activism all these years and, and, and your willingness to understand what's really going on in the world. Um, uh, you know, we, not, we don't always agree, but I, I, I honor it. Kino, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans by Stanley B. Greenberg. This is from the introduction. This book tells an amazing story, and if you hadn't seen what happened to America over the last four years, you wouldn't believe it. It even has a happy ending that's none too soon for all of those of us who've had enough fighting, division, and enough politics. This time, the end of politics portends a country united and finally liberated from gridlock to address the nation's most serious problems. It ends with the death of the Republican Party as we've known it, while the survivors work to recreate the party of Lincoln, relevant for our times. It ends with the Democratic Party liberated from the nation's suffocating polarization to use government to advance the public good, as the country used to expect. You see, our country is hurtling toward a new America 
that is ever more racially and culturally diverse, younger, millennial, more secular and unmarried, with fewer traditional families and male breadwinners, more immigrant and foreign-born who are more concentrated in the growing metropolitan areas, which are magnets for investment and for people. The new America encompasses a vast array of family types and working families in which both the men and women face growing challenges. The new America is ever more racially blended and multinational, more secular and religiously pluralistic. The new America embraces the country's immigrant and foreign character. It now includes the college-educated and suburban women who want respect and equality in a multicultural America. America was shaped by major social movements, civil unrest, political battles, and government action at historic junctures, and by the choices the two national political parties took that created a more modern America. Each moved America away from traditional strictures on blacks, women, and immigrants. Each juncture made America freer, more equal, and more democratic. With the Democratic Party on a trajectory that aligned Democrats with the country's emerging civic norms, and alienated the Republican Party from the country and from itself. America was changed profoundly by the battle to pass the civil rights laws that ended racial segregation and ensured blacks had the right to vote. Bipartisan immigration laws reopened the country to non-Anglo-Saxon immigration in 1965 and greatly expanded it in the late 1980s. The Supreme Court put women on a path to greater independence and equality when it declared in 1965 that women have a right to privacy and birth control, and in 1973 when it made abortion legal. And these different choices came to fruition with the election and re-election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president whose activist government produced a Tea Party movement and revolt that accelerated the polarization of the country and made attributes about race and immigration matter as never before. The Tea Party and Donald Trump battled to stop history and stop government. At each juncture, the Democrats were deeply divided, sometimes more than the Republicans. This was true on matters of civil rights, immigration, and abortion. Nonetheless, after these defining social issues were settled in law or by the U.S. Supreme Court, national Democratic leaders embraced and defended the social changes and new freedoms that aligned the party with a modernizing America and its values. After more than five decades of such choices, the Democratic Party is associated with equal rights, equality, gender equality, tolerance, openness to diversity, and more. The Republicans' electoral base was in the South and later in the Appalachian Valley and rural states across the country, so at each juncture they escalated their battle against these national changes. The party's national leaders ignored their own deep divisions and worked inventively to show they were champions of white people during the battle over civil rights and affirmative action. Its leaders scorned the sexual revolution and championed to this day a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal. They were opposed to women breaking free of the patriarchal family and winning equality. They mobilized against illegal immigration in the states and nationally fueled by Patrick Buchanan's three campaigns for president. New Gingrich led a revolution in the early 1990s that put the GOP into a total war footing against the Democratic Party determined to expand the liberal welfare state and marginalize conservatism, but those forces defeated him. The Tea Party led the GOP's life and death battle against President Obama and his Affordable Care Act, fueled by Tea Party protests that elevated white racial resentment and hostility to immigrants. 
Defeating and delegitimizing President Obama was the last chance to stop the new America from winning. Obama's 2008 election, the Wall Street bailout, and the searing battle to pass Obamacare produced the Tea Party revolt and the Tea Party wave election of 2010, the most consequential election of our lifetime. It gave the Tea Party-fueled Republican Party effective control of the U.S. House and Senate, two-thirds of the governorships, and more than 60% of the state legislative chambers, which rushed to radically redraw the legislative and congressional maps to ensure big GOP majorities for a decade. The Tea Party-led GOP pushed the country into fiscal austerity and to deconstruct government to stop Democrats from using government for positive ends or paying off its growing coalition with new entitlements. The book R.I.P. GOP. in Cawthorn, California. You wanted to talk about the recall going on in your state? It's starting to get serious Tom, here. Tom, I'm putting out an emergency call to all California voters to respond with a no vote on the recall of Governor Newsom. Yep. Trump and his minions are gunning for our governor. Well, not just your governor. They also they also think if they can get a Republican in that governor's position, then yeah, they're going to go well, after then they're going to go after Dianne Feinstein and try and force her to resign so right. they can replace her with a Republican and take over the Senate. And yeah. she's 88. I mean, they may succeed. Right. Well, uh, they're gunning for our governor, especially Larry Elder, the talk show host and mentor of Stephen Miller. Yep. And he's no, all over right-wing talk radio, all oh, over yeah, California. Absolutely. Know that this is a very close race, mm -hmm. and every vote is important. The wolves are dressed in sheep's clothing, saying that things won't really change. Yeah. Don't believe them. We could lose the years of progress that we have made with those who care about the people of this state yeah. and not just with big business. Mail your ballots by the end of next week. Vote yeah. no on the recall. There you go. Mail your ballot today. Pat, thank you very much for the call. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Chris, got a minute here to the break. What's up? Yeah, the virus has killed more people than any war. The virus knows no borders. The U.S. has a choice. Protect patents and mega profits of billionaires and let it rage out of control around the world or suspend the patents and let the entire world produce billions of doses of vaccine to end the virus. I'm with you. That's why I mentioned SARS and MERS. I mean, you know, it's, I, I think we need to profit or end the pandemic and save millions. Right. And and possibly save us from this virus mutating into something that's more like the original SARS viruses, which is even more deadly than the one that we're dealing with. I'm with you, Chris. I am absolutely with you. We need these trips waivers and we need them now. Chris, thank you very much for the call. Back with your calls on whatever you'd like to talk about. California recall. Supreme Court, flying saucers, pigeons, your choice, we'll pick it up.
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's the place where we dare to ask, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, no, the Supreme Court was so wrong on that. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, picking up your phone calls. George in Garden City, Kansas. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, one thing I'd like to see uh, happen is if the uh, government decides to send out another stimulus check, make one of the rules of eligibility is proof of vaccination to receive your $2,000 stimulus check. Yeah. And that's the only comment I'd like to make. Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, you know, I, th- I think the... If you know that, I, I don't object to that, George. I think it would be difficult to enforce, but I am fully expecting now that this vaccine is approved that probably, uh, typically, the insurance companies come out with their new rules, as it were, you know, in October because they've got that open enrollment period of mid-October through mid-January. Um, I'm guessing yeah. that you're going to see health insurance companies and maybe even life insurance companies uh, say uh, not unreasonably. We are going to start rating people the same way we do with regard to the use of tobacco. If you use tobacco, your life insurance policy is more expensive if we'll even write one for you. If, uh, if you won't get vaccinated, ditto. If you use tobacco, your health insurance policy is going to be more expensive for you. If you're not going to get vaccinated, ditto. I'm fully expecting that. So, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. But, George, keep thinking. That's a good one. I appreciate the call. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Hey, Charles. Um, I'm, ca- I'm calling because I'm thinking, like, what about the Afghan soldiers' point of view? You always hear three sides to one story. And my thing is, <clears throat> basically, Trump ex the our only ally in Afghanistan, which was the Afghan government, who in part was employing the soldiers. And how in the world that our military didn't know that the Afghan soldiers weren't paid for at least three months, you know, and they're walking out the door and they're thinking, well, these Afghan soldiers are going to support, you know, us mm-hmm. through our exit. You know, something is wrong with that picture. And as far as the Afghan... Are you sure that, um, Charles? I didn't realize that, that the, uh, the this corrupt Ghani government where Ghani flew to the United Arab Emirates with, what was it, $169 million in $100 bills stuffed into his airplane? I didn't realize he wasn't paying his army. Are you sure about that? No, yeah, definitely. We've heard accounts where the army wasn't paid for three months. Huh. I've heard that on different news. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And that's, and um, what bothered me about all of this and why this came to my mind as far as Afghan soldiers was I was Googling this Afghan soldier and I saw a coward. And that really bothered me. So, you know, you have people that they didn't want these Afghan soldiers did not and they probably could have had a chance to sign up with ISIS or the Taliban. But no, they actually probably are people that believe in democracy and wanted a better And over 60,000 of them died. We've, we've lost a little over 2,000, I think around 2,400 soldiers in Afghanistan in the 20 years we've been there. Over 60,000 Afghan soldiers that we know of and can identify have died. The actual number is probably at least twice that. Right, and this time, they actually took American supplied airplanes and went to you know different parts of um, I think it's Turkestan Tur- Tur- or uh, I forget the different yeah. names right and, and and a different part of um you know uh, northern Af- um, 
Afghanistan as well, just to get away from the Taliban. So to me, those are the people that still need to be rescued because mm. they did not want to be part of fighting against America. And to me, all this crap that we hear on Fox News, it's just that those people are raging. They've been raging since they lost the, lost the election, and they're not going to be happy until they have Joe Biden's head and get to call every Democrat every name in the book. So what we need to do is this. We need to remember Trump is the one who signed this agreement. He let 5,000, uh, somewhere along the line, 5,000 Taliban soldiers who are now, I think, ISIS-K, are now free because of Donald Trump. And they're trying to blame it on us. But let's not forget the Afghan soldiers that refuse to fight ISIS. And what are we doing? And, and, and why, why isn't their story being told as well? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Excellent point, Charles. Sticking up for the underdog. Good on you. Thank you. Uh, Susie in Bloomington, Indiana. Hey, Susie, you've got a problem with the bus service there? Yes. Um, I'm a mostly disabled person, and I live in an area of Bloomington where there are a lot of elderly and disabled people. Mm -hmm. And the city bus service is trying to eliminate one of the routes that we depend on to get to stores, to get our groceries, and to do other go-to-doctor appointments in the area. They're, they put their plans on hold until December, but basically they're going to leave us stranded. And I'm trying to bring attention to this issue because there are many people here who will have no other options. They do have a paratransit service. The problem with that is it can be rather cost prohibitive if you need to go out several times a week. Hmm. And they were they were trying to tell us that they were going to get us like Uber rides for a dollar to go to the grocery store. And I just don't see that. They haven't even talked about that lately. I think that was just some pie-in-the-sky issue. Do they have regular public but meetings, Susie? They do. And um, so I'm planning on going to the next Bloomington Transit meeting and a city council meeting. Good. I have dealt with them, and I have dealt with them in the past, and I have beat them mm -hmm. in the past. Good. But the forces are greater, and... And I get more disabled. I have um, memory problems, and it's getting harder for me to organize things. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was hoping to publicize this issue. Is there a website, show. Susie, do you, that people who are outside of Bloomington, Indiana, can can you know at least tweet or make their voices heard or make a phone call or whatever? Is there is there any way yes. for people out out of town to? Yes, they do. Yes, they do have a public comment space, and it's um, customer, C-U-S-T-O-M-E-R, at BloomingtonTransit.com. Okay. And Cus their customer phone number, at BloomingtonTransit.com, okay. Yes, and their phone number is 812-336-7433. Yeah, and if you call that number, uh, A, please be a resident of Indiana at the very least, and B, be very polite. I mean, you know, I'm... Yes. I, yeah. So uh, good on you, Susie. I, I wish you the very best. Keep us up to date and let us know how it works out. That's, that's uh, activism at its very best. Speaking of activism, Norma in Montgomery, Alabama, one of my favorite activists on the line with us. Hey, Norma, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to let you know that COVID here in Alabama is very bad. We had 5,000 new cases yesterday. Oh, we my. had 50 people die yesterday. Mobile is out of morgue space. We're asking for federal military medical help. 
Um, the schools are being closed again. You know, we had 111 children in one school with 16 employees test positive last week. You know, this is school's wow. been open two weeks, yeah. and this is very bad. And schools are being closed to, for deep cleaning. And we still have people here having hysterics over wearing a mask. Yeah. You know, and you have these people. Oh, you, you're violating my beliefs if, you know, you have gay people walking on the streets. And now these same idiots are saying, you can't force me to wear a mask. Right. And it's just. I know. The, 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 the sign that I keep seeing at these things, my body, my choice. It's like, yes. this is hysterical. You yeah, just well, stole that from the abortion, and, the abortion, yeah. the, the pro-choice movement. Yes, well, we, we, we're getting that on our, on our Facebook pages, too. You know, you people say it's my choice. I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, you can keep your hands off of our bodies because you're not female to start out with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it just, you know, I'm and, worried about that. And then there's that. the nudists. It's my choice to wear clothes. <laughs> yeah, well, how about the women in Afghanistan? They're going to yeah. have no choice, and they'll yeah. be pregnant at 12 and 13. Yeah, and sadly. And dying in the, on the floor because they're not allowed to go to a doctor. Yeah. But, you know, here, though, we've got this hurricane coming in also. People are already mm -hmm. evacuating out of Louisiana. And so you have uh, the potential for spreading it even more as people flee mm -hmm. and they don't want to wear their masks. They're upset and they're worried about their homes. And you can have, you know, they're talking about this has the potential to be another Katrina. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's sitting on the uh, on the anniversary of Katrina, isn't it? Like right to the day or at least to the week? Um, that was the 25th of August. Okay, yeah, so it's, yes. it's the same week. When it anyway. hit, it was the 25th. Yeah. Yeah, so it's supposed to come in Sunday morning, and that's if it continues at the same speed. Yeah. But this COVID problem here, thank you, Trump, for being here last weekend. Oh, geez, I completely forgot about that. Are they able to track it now to Trump's uh, super spreader event? I don't know, but I think that by the time these people, they've been home now for a week, wherever they came from, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, it's no telling how far they came from. You're going to see even more COVID in the next five days. You're listening yeah. to Tom Hartman. Yeah. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Norma, keep the faith. Thanks so much for the call, and I wish you the very best there in Alabama. Today we're reading from the Polar Bear Expedition, the heroes of America's forgotten invasion of Russia, 1918-1919. It's a story, by the way, that the Russians remember well, but most Americans are unaware of. This is from the prologue, Nizhny Gora, Russia, January 19th, 1919. They've been expecting it for weeks, hell, months. And so the men of Company A to the 339th Infantry Regiment, the Polar Bears, as they would come to call themselves, have stood night and day in 40 below zero temperatures. They stamp their feet and try not to touch bare skin on the frozen barrels of their weapons, lest their flesh be ripped off. They peer through the deep ebony night of their dark log-lined dugouts into the frigid tundra toward the south and east across the ice-choked river and watch for it, wait for it, and wonder how many will come and how they will perform when they do. And they wonder too if and how they will ever get out of this place, this frozen Hades, this last place on earth at the top of the world. And then early on this morning, they do come, a horde of them, dim forms in the distance spread out across the Vaga River, some on skis, others on snowshoes, all of them armed, 
like ghost warriors traversing the river Styx, hundreds of them to their mere handful of 46. Bolos, the men call them, Bolsheviks. Now a shell flung from upriver, arcing and piercing the barely gray of dawn flies over the village. Lieutenant Harry Meade awakens with a start, quickly dons his fur hat and overcoat and boots and races to the far outpost where this scant group of half dozen men stands guard against not only the enemy, but the tide of history. The sergeant hands him his field glasses and he squints through the misty blowing snow. The only sounds the sharp snapping of frozen tree branches and the dull booming of the river ice cracking. He sees them now coming on several hundred yards in the distance and he quickly understands that the company is probably doomed. Now a grayish form enters his view much closer and he peels the glass from his eye. Steam comes from his mouth as the thin outpost is now about to be overrun by a nearer group of the enemy who have snuck closer and rise like dervishes from their concealment in the deep snow. Lieutenant Harry Meade, late of Valparaiso, Indiana and Detroit, Michigan, stranded more than 200 miles from his regiment's base at Archangel, Russia, doesn't have to speak as the mass of bolos descends on his small attachment. His men are already furiously firing their machine guns and rifles at this grisly apparition, all while more artillery shells spew over them and land amid them. Meade yells the words anyway, as if by rote, as if it's not too late, as if any of them has a chance. Fire, Meade orders his men. For God's sake, fire! Chapter 1, The March to Intervention. The preliminaries began on March 9, 1918, with millions of high-explosive and gas shells raining across the front between the northern French cities of Prey and Saint-Quentin. The smothering of the British-held territory continued through the week and beyond, and was topped off with a continuous salvo from 6,700 pieces of German artillery, which began at 4.30 in the morning on March 21st. Five hours later, heavy mortars began raining death and destruction on the British Fifth Army, and five minutes later, the advance of three German armies, 69 divisions in all, poured from their trenches and headed east with the aim of splitting the junction of British and French forces on the southern end of the Somme front and sending the Brits in a panic for the protection of the Channel ports. There was an urgency to the assault, and for good reason. With the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on March 3rd, Russia had officially taken itself out of the war and relieved the pressure on Germany's eastern front. After years of fighting a two-front war, German forces were now consolidated. Meanwhile, the United States, which had declared war on Germany nearly a year before, had yet to send enough men across the Atlantic to tip the balance in the Allies' favor on the western front. But the Yanks were coming. During that spring of 1918, therefore, Germany had a small and unique window in which to act while the numbers favored them, and so the hand-picked assault troops went forward in great and deadly haste. Above the attackers, 326 fighter aircraft soared into the morning, their opposition just 261 British planes. Following barrages, small teams of stormtroopers appeared out of the deep fog and, ignoring the British strongpoints, cut swaths through the trenches with light machine guns, automatic weapons, and flamethrowers. By the end of the first day of what would be a months-long offensive, the Germans had pushed more than four miles through the British and were still advancing. In their wake, they left the bodies of an untold number of defenders, thousands of wounded and 21,000 prisoners. By March 23rd, three huge guns made by the arms manufacturer Krupp had been hauled forward and began sending shells into Paris, 72 miles away. 200 Parisians would be killed on that day alone. 
Those unlucky Parisians would be but grains of sand in an ocean of war that had enveloped France since August of 1914, when a gray tide of Germans had pushed across the border with Belgium and by early September had very nearly taken Paris. The flood was checked on the Marne River east of the French capital in early September, but the war, it would eventually become known as the Great War, had only begun. The Germans intended to stay, and by the end of 1914, a dizzying series of parallel zigzagging trenches, French, German, and to the north, those of France's British allies, scarred the French soil, the polar bear expedition. And welcome back. Uh, trying to see who's been on hold here longest. Mel, uh, Mike in El Elira, Ohio. Hey, Mike, what's e up? Elyria to the best service class in America. Elyria. Okay. What's up? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I, at your age, you know, we're both within a year of each other. Uh -huh. I read the obituaries. And a, a suburb made about two miles from us just had a Sturgis rally death. Really? Yes, sir. Somebody just, just died just down the road from you that you can track back to Christy Nome's service, uh, Sturgis uh, super spreader event. Well, I read the obituaries, and in the obituary it says that this gentleman loved Harley Davidson's, and he was at Sturgis. So. Wow. Wow. It's so, so unfortunate. It's on our doorsteps. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. And it's happening all over the country. So that was what you wanted yeah, to share with us, Mike? Yeah, and I'm um, waiting for your book. It's on order, so. Oh, on health care? Yeah, that, that should be I'll out have, next I'll week. I'll have them all, yeah. I'll yeah. have them all except for the new ones coming up, so. Okay, well, thank you. I, I hope you find it of value, and when you have a chance to read it, you give me a shout. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, I do. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Mike. Good talking to you. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? I just want to reiterate something that Morris was bringing up he says talking about buying out companies like oil companies mm -hmm. i think we should i think we should uh we could for 321 billion we could buy the top 10 biggest ag companies in the country really and then yeah i, I added up you know archland midlands one that's only 35 billion so about 320 billion we could buy them all out then we can make uh reparations to african americans give them each 10 acres and a uh a little small farm, or maybe 40, you know, ripped mm -hmm. off in the first place. And uh, we can, you know, with the Green New Deal, then we can leave a lot of that land for, uh, because uh, the big part of the climate change is the deal with the, uh, what, how we plant. So we leave uh, fields, uh, we plow them up. They, that would be a great sequestering of carbon. Right. And we could also start the CC program again, and we could put people to work planting trees and I'm, I'm crazy. I think we should have a, a bike uh, uh, lane across the country with little charging stations for electric bikes. I know that's pretty out there. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Louise, you, when well, we I, lived in D.C., Louise had an electric bike, and she tooled all over the city on it. It was, you know, I mean, it was oh, yeah. one of these pedal bikes. You pedal it most of the time, oh, but I, if you're pushing up a hill, you push the button, and you get an electric assist, and it's really cool. Yeah, I'm getting older. I like biking, but I, I can't do what I used to. But it'd be kind of nice to, yeah, they're pretty popular in the city here, too. And you can have little charging stations, you know, mm -hmm. you know, a little trip across America and even make them with recycled plastic that we give people permanent jobs, you know, with a guaranteed yeah. federal job. And, uh, you know, so uh, 
I don't know, just little thoughts on the, something we could do with, uh, you know, if we, we bought out these, you know, money is speech. Let's use our speech and buy these companies out that are destroying our planet. Yeah. And at the same time, save the planet. So, yeah, one of my, uh, one of my solutions in this uh, new uh, Hidden History of American Healthcare book is to buy out the health insurance companies. That, that would be in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars. Um, I had no idea you could buy out all the ag co companies for a third of a trillion dollars. But, well, that was, that's just the top 10, top 10. Well, that's, so. yeah, the, the top 10 are probably a good chunk of them. That's fascinating. That's Jeff, true. thanks. You know, some, some good ideas out there. We need to put them into place. You stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back. We're talking, uh, oh, we're talking all kinds of things, whatever's on your mind. Bob in Rockford, Illinois. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hello, Tom. Good afternoon. I've been reading a book that was written by uh, Carol Leoning, who is an uh, investigative reporter for the Washington uh, Times. Yeah, newspaper. I, I, I learned after having her on as a guest or her co-author that it's actually pronounced Lenig, but I, it's spelled L-E-O-N-I-G. So. I, I, I get what you're saying, Bob. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, the book is called Zero Fail, mm -hmm. and it shocks me. I'm 79 years old. I'm a, a widower, and I want to read this, just this paragraph from the prologue and see. If it's very this. brief, Bob, please. We, we ask people not to read on the air here. Oh, okay. Well, this paragraph asks about how can this organization, who is one of the worst working environments in Washington and can't hire enough people fast enough to fill the vacancies and can't stop an assassination with stubborn devotion alone? And I highly recommend What's she talking about there with that, Bob? 
This organization, what organization is she talking oh, about? It's the Secret Service. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, that's right. She wrote a book about the Secret yeah, that's, yeah. that's uh, which, by the way, came out of the Treasury Department after the Abraham Lincoln assassination. Yes, yes, yeah. I know they started then. But uh, over time, they have been given more and more duties to perform, mm -hmm. and their budget has grown from several million to multi-million dollars. And um, the leaders of the organization are very vindictive if the agents bring something up. So a lot of the agents are silenced by uh, fear of losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So Bob, what's it's, your, what's your, what are your thoughts on how to reform the Secret Service in ways that make it more functional? And, and I, you know, I would think uh, if anybody would be concerned about that, it'd be the President of the United States. This is his security detail. Yes, I would agree. But I think it needs to have a, a serious look at, you know, a committee and um, so on. But it's just amazing what the mission of the Secret Service has done over the years and what it has to do yeah. to me. And the budget is, is gone into the multi-million dollars. And, of course, they haven't had some they've had some very poor things that the agents have done for instance when obama was going to south america they went to the um, they all got drunk uh, and were hooking up with hookers yes 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 yeah i remember so, it well anyway, yeah bob i'm hopeful that carol lennox book will produce some change and and thank you for highlighting it that was that was excellent scott in charlevoix michigan the the, the town where my parents are buried hey scott what's up where i used to vacation as a child what's up well, I'm going to get a little conspiratorial here. What I think is, to most people is seemingly insignificant symbolism, I think will be viewed as the most significant symbolism or symbolic gesture to mark okay. 21st century. We have a half a minute, Scott. That, Let's get right to it. Okay. Um, and that is the GOP and their master classes altering of their logo to flip the stars upside down. I view that as their declaration of war on democracy. I do too. Full, they did that in two thousand. of fascism. Yep. Yeah, in two thousand, and so we're talking about twenty years in Afghanistan. But how about this twenty-year war on democracy right here? Yep. And you know, in full embrace of fascism and use of brute force tactics on all fronts. And, and I have asked, I have asked Republican senators, I've asked Republican House members, I've asked, I asked the chairman of the Republican Party, why did you guys turn the American star, the right side up five pointed star, into the upside down satanic star on your logo? And none of them have been able to give me a straight answer. Yep. I've been asking this for twenty years. I know. I've been listening to you for about twelve. Yeah, it's and, just incredible. Um, it's like, why would yep. they do this? Why, why would they put? And, you know, the openly satanic star as their logo. There's three of them on the elephant, on their logo. It's their official logo. You can look it up. GOP logo. And the stars are upside down. And, you know, you, you flip a flag upside down, it's an international distress signal when the stars go upside down. Um, exactly. But, yeah, Scott, uh, it's still a mystery. Or maybe not. Maybe they really are just in league with Satan. God only knows. Scott, thank you for the call. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, 
by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials that continue to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show the three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government. Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, this limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three Mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge <clears throat> as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Camtex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa Godfather Santos Traficante and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almeida coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. 
We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin swing smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta, where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last congressional committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the congressional report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficante and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. The HSCA, headed by civil rights figure Louis Stokes, also concluded there was a likelihood of conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King, and that financial gain was James Earl Ray's primary motivation. But they were unable to determine who had paid Ray or how the conspiracy had worked because the FBI and other agencies had hid critical files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time, Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, Legacy of Secrecy. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.